1: Hello, you're listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua, and today we have on our programme Emma Griffin, who's here to talk to us about her latest book, Breadwinner, An Intimate History of the Victorian Economy. Some of our listeners might be familiar with Emma's work elsewhere. She appears quite regularly on the BBC, as well as the BBC History Extra podcast. But this is her first time on the programme, so a very warm welcome to you, Emma.
0: Hi, thank you.
1: Um, we'd like to begin by inviting our guests to tell us a little bit more about themselves so I think we should start with that. How did you come to be an historian?
0: Well um, I didn't really um, anticipate becoming a historian at all. I actually started a maths degree a long time ago um, and presumed I would work in some kind of, I don't really know what I had in mind, Um, but anyway I didn't Really get on with the maths degree awfully well. So I left university and went back a couple of years later, and I was um, restricted to what I'd done at A levels, which had been maths, physics, and history. So having kind of explored the the maths, scientific, engineering route, um, I fell back on history. So it was really serendipity that I did the history degree, enjoyed it more than I could have anticipated. And as I was studying, it started to dawn on me that you could do higher degrees and you could even get jobs um, in doing this. And that's, that's what I did.
1: And, and of course, you've reached where you are today. You are now the president of the Royal Historical Society. So I think congratulations are very much in order. Thank you.
0: Thanks.
1: <laughs> well, I think we better get started on the book because we've got quite a fair bit of ground to cover. I'd like to start with the subtitle because you've chosen quite an interesting adjective to describe your retelling of Victorian history intimate could you perhaps tell us a little more about that
0: yes um so i mean i think i should say that i i have worked on autobiographies before i'd worked on autobiographies um using those life stories to think about life during the industrial revolution um i really enjoyed working with the sources so i just really anticipated um continuing on with the sources i knew there were many more sources I mean, it's quite a struggle to find good quality sources for the kind of period before about 1830, 1840, and they become more numerous and richer sources afterwards. So I I knew I would probably carry on working with the sources because I enjoyed working with them so much. What I didn't really realise is how the sources would shed light Um, On the kinds of themes that I've been interested in. I've been thinking about social change and the impact of the Industrial Revolution. I hadn't really expected the sources to tell me so much about how what went on in families and what went on in homes and what we consider to be private and which we kind of conceptualize as historians as belonging to social history or belonging to cultural history. I suppose what I hadn't really anticipated is that all of those private, personal um, bits of information contained in the sources would also actually shed light on the big story of social change and of economic change as well. So the subtitle is obviously an intimate history um, of the Victorian economy. And I think what I was trying to get there is the the links between what goes on uh, privately between individuals and particularly in homes and in the domestic sphere and the bigger theme of the economy, which we tend to regard as um, objective, external, something that we can measure, and certainly something that doesn't really have very much to do with the family.
1: Do you see your work being a sort of challenge to the conventional economic view of the Industrial Revolution?
0: I didn't. um, I think my earlier work, in a way, did challenge ideas about the Industrial Revolution, um, because... The dominant view of the Industrial Revolution tends to be that it was quite negative, quite pernicious, quite harmful for ordinary working people. I didn't find that using autobiographies for the earlier period. Um, I found a lot of examples of working men, and the sources were largely written by men, um, actually of um, being able to find opportunities and to improve uh, um, living standards but also much more than that actually, to be able to enrich their lives uh, the getting away from the countryside getting away from the farm um, getting away from the family these were kind of liberating um, and enjoyable positive experiences there were obviously some losers and there were some downsides but the autobiographers weren't really shedding light on those negatives um, so I think that's where I really um, took a understanding a story that we have about the Industrial Revolution or an understanding about economic change and said, no, I don't think it did work like that. I think what happened with um, Breadwinner was actually slightly different in that there wasn't really a big narrative out there, a great big understanding of economic history. I mean, in the background, there's this belief that um, the economy continued to grow all through the 19th century and that living standards started to rise for ordinary working people. So I, I guess in some ways I definitely engaged with that idea. Um, but what I really found with the um, the later autobiographies, and partly because they are different kinds of sources and also many, many more sources written by women, what started to become apparent is actually those big narratives that we have about the Industrial Revolution and those narratives we have about the economy really don't build in women's experiences and that without those experiences um, they're just misleading and they're incomplete.
1: Well we've talked a lot about autobiographies as your main sources in this historical work. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about the kinds of challenges that presented themselves in interpreting these as historical sources.
0: Yes, I mean there are obviously many challenges um, in using autobiographical sources. I think I always like to preface this by saying all sources are problems. All sources have problems. None of the sources that historians work with, or or it's very rare for us to be working with sources that were created so that we could write the history books that we want to write. The the sources that we work with tend to have been created for other purposes and we always face challenges. And I think it it can... it, it. People seem to be very uniquely concerned that autobiographies are a problematic source. And I've worked with many different kinds of sources. There are problems with all kinds of sources. Um, And I don't think the sources actually with autobiographies are exceptional or insurmountable. I think all historians really should be asking questions about who created this source. um, Why does it exist? Why did it survive? um, What potential biases or, or problems are there with this account that we're being provided with? Um, so having said that I and mean, specifically thinking about autobiographies what are the problems with autobiographies well um they i mean i think for me maybe the way one way of conceptualizing the problem is that the sources are not unique in coverage not every single working person wrote an autobiography and yet i want to tell a story about the industrial revolution or about the victorian economy that is general in, in coverage, that does make general claims about um, social, economic, cultural change over various periods of time. So it's about getting from the particular to the general. Um, so autobiographies they tended to have been written um, by um, men in the early period. Always written by men, and tended to be written by people who went on and did something significant in their lives. Um, they didn't mean they started off their life in a particular way. I mean, I'm looking at working class autobiographies, so the definition really was kind of humble um, origins. Um, but it's obviously the case that by the time these people write their autobiographies, they very often um, experience some social mobility. They're much more comfortable in life, and that may um, influence the story that they tell. And then, of course, there are always problems about memory, Um, particularly if you've gone and done something in life. You may have a reputation that you're trying to um, maintain. You may want to protect members of your family from personal details. There's all sorts of reasons why bits of information will be kept back. I'd also say a lot of those problems actually were much more acute for the earlier um, period than for the later period. So, In the Victorian period, looking back to people who lived during the Industrial Revolution, it tended to be quite difficult to learn how to read and write. And it tended to be a person with a lot of confidence um, who would write their memories. You, You really had to be a man who'd done something, like you'd become a preacher, or you'd become a chartist, or you'd really done something quite important. And that was what gave you the skills, And no less importantly, the confidence to write a story that you thought other people would be interested in and maybe even get that story published. Those are very limiting factors. So what's particularly joyful when we look at the 19th century is many of those um, restrictions start to ever weigh. Because now we're looking at people who maybe were born at the late uh, 19th century or in the Edwardian period, um, who have childhood memories that take us well back into the 19th century or the very early 20th century but who are writing their memories in the 1960s or in the 1970s as an elderly person. Now by this point um, many, many people are literate, many more people are literate and um, And we've got things like the um, emergence of local history movements and oral history movements. So all sorts of movements trying to encourage people who traditionally wouldn't have written their stories to share their memories. Um, We've got um, higher literacy, the chances of um, survival of documents from the 1960s. Obviously, it's much easier for a document to survive from the 1960s. And by the 1980s, people were saying, hey, have you got these memories, share them. So a lot of them have been deposited in archives and catalogued. So you really start to get um, a much wider swathe of experiences for the Victorian period, particularly the late Victorian period. And you really do get autobiography, get lots of autobiographies written by women, but I think the the really big shift is you get autobiographies written by people who were born working class and who lived working class and who are now elderly. And are still living in a council flat, and are, by some definition or another, working class. They've not made, they've they've not gone through this process of social mobility. And um, so, although there are real drawbacks, obviously there's still drawbacks with these sources. I think the sources actually become very, very rich um, as we move through the Victorian period. You can really, really kind of get into people's lives in a way that just isn't possible at the earlier period, when so many fewer people had access to to
1: writing their own story. Yeah, and you talk about needing a great deal of confidence to write these autobiographies, and I suppose that in part explains why, I think somewhere in your book you mentioned that most of the male writers in your corpus at some point in their lives became involved in politics, and I suppose that had something to do with with this general trend in your corpus.
0: Absolutely. Um, That was a wonderful way of getting people into... All kind of away from their rather unlettered working class origins and into a world in which the printed word matter, the spoken word matter, in which these kinds of forms of communication were valued and validated. Um, So I think that's absolutely right. Politics is a a fantastic. Way or kind of fantastic tool of getting people to write autobiographies. Partly as well because people realise very quickly um, if they're getting involved in political movements that they'll be much more effective if they are better educated. So quite often political movements are also bound up or working class political movements during the 19th century were also very bound up with trying to improve people's reading and writing and oratory skills. So it, it all kind of comes together as a package, a kind of um, apprenticeship if you will um, in writing an autobiography
1: and thinking about these small limiting factors uh, in, in making your sources representative of the working class in the Victorian economy were there any particular perspectives that you felt were obscured in these autobiographies
0: um. I think there are certainly omissions the further we go back. So the really big omission as we go back to the earlier period is very, very few written by women. Um, absolutely, definitely. And, and um, the other omission is, is few. We've all, there are always some sources written by men who were working class all through their lives. Those people still existed. But they are outnumbered by people who had started working class and who had gone through a journey of mobility. Um I think it's very interesting, actually. One of the things I did with all of the sources, um, both the earlier and the later period, but thinking more systematically for the later period, is just put them all into a spreadsheet and just ask the question, well, obviously, what's their gender? Um, where in the country are they born? Are they born in, an, in a city or are they born in a very quiet agricultural village? Are they born in some kind of market town like Norwich or am Base? You know, where, what kind of place do they come from? I can put in information about family size. Um, and really, there was just always an, an enormous spread. Um, and I think what was very striking is that it even included people who had been born into abject poverty, who had really been born into the very... Um, you know, the, the underclass, the, the the poorest classes, the most fragile families, they're all there in the autobiographies. And, and I think the assumption would be that it would be the more comfortable working class families that were slightly better off that would kind of go on and write their autobiographies. And that really isn't the case. So many, many single parent families, um they're always the poorest, or yeah, they're broken families, single mother families tend to be much poorer than two-parent families. they in there, and entirely broken families as well. So quite several several accounts of people who um, spent parts of their childhood in the workhouse. In, I call them well, they were often called orphanages, but very often they're not orphans. They do have parents, but in institutions of various kinds, um, and even some that have memories of childhood homelessness. Um, we don't know things like the rate of childless ho- childhood homelessness or about abject poverty but what we can certainly say is that you really do get the entire range you have the comfortable two-parent working class family with a reliable father who brings home a good wage um, and a piano in the parlour um, and you have a huge um, diversity all the way down to as i say broken families and even um, children without families together so there are things that aren't mentioned in the autobiography. There are certainly silences. Um, but I didn't feel that there's a segment of the population that systematically were not able to write their autobiographies. As I say even some autobiographies written by women who had um, had since working as a working prostitution, for example. Um, it's all in there. There's, it's nearly all in there. But even despite all of that, there are definite silences. So there are things that the autobiographies never talk about um very very little discussion or well, no discussion whatsoever of homosexuality I've never mentioned by any of the autobiographers even in the sense of the neighbor down the road or a brother or an uncle it's just not mentioned it's completely verboten um virtually no mention of incest or sexual abuse um there is one uh, account of that actually and um uh, so, there are some silences. There are definitely some silences, and um, generally not very much information about sex and things that are considered very private, um, even for people writing the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, there are bits of that creep in as well, but there, there, there are silences more than segments who are unrepresented,
1: I would say. Of course, and, and aside from cultural taboos, I, I think somewhere in your book you also note that a great deal of these autobiographies demonstrate a sort of, I think use the words reticence towards the emotional elements of life.
0: Yes, absolutely. So I think that is, I mean, I think that's a really interesting challenge, I mean, particularly for those that were born in the Victorian period or in the kind of Edwardian period, I and mean, then writing their autobiography in the 1970s. So very often they have been raised in families, and they'll even say this explicitly, where nobody ever used the word love um, where there were no cuddles, there were no kisses, there were no outward displays of affection. And there was often a lot of physical violence, even you know, in families, um, from both mothers and fathers, quite a lot of physical violence, um, not necessarily um, the same as abuse, but they were austere families and austere childhoods. And of course now they're writing about their family um, in the 1970s where it really isn't um, accepted to thwack your children on the minorist of pretenses. And it really is considered a good thing to cuddle your children and to love them. And attachment theory has emerged, for example, psychology has emerged. Um, So what you do find is these writers, I mean, the autobiography can almost become a negotiation. And you can see the change of language as as they work through the writing. So, in the early phases, they'll declare their parents maybe to be very good parents, very good parents, they did everything a parent should do. And then, as the discussion goes on, more and more kind of comes to the surface, and they find themselves telling stories that don't sound like a good parent for somebody writing in the 1970s. Um, and you can see this kind of slippage between what it is that they're trying to say. And they often don't really, you know, it may well be that they're not awfully clear. Themselves, it was a childhood that felt fine at the time. I mean, it was much better than the other households further down the street. Uh, it was fine, um, but actually now looking back on it, um, it has problems. So you, you know, I mean, I, I, my approach to that is not to try and think, oh well, let's try and get a consistent true story. We can just we can work with this rewriting. Um, we can work with this kind of instability within the narrative. These are things that are interesting to us as well.
1: And of course, you mentioned earlier how the genre of the working-class autobiography sort of evolved over the Victorian and modern periods. Um, And as we come to 1970s, you have these local history movements and oral history movements that really encourage people to tell their stories. But I'm thinking about in the late or middle 19th century, what motivated people in that time to put pen to paper?
0: Yes, the motivation changes an awful lot. And as we go back to our earlier period, so somebody who was maybe born um, in 1800 and is now writing in 1870, so kind of born before the Victorian period and writing slap bang in the middle of the Victorian period. I mean, really, I'd say anybody writing down to about 1900 tends to have been motivated by achievement. That tends to be the rationale. Now, that's not entirely the case because... Male labor is something that is respected. So a man who spent his life as a shoemaker or as a carpenter, this is still considered to be um, a valuable life. A, 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 a work, an adult life of male labour is considered to be a story worth telling and it's considered to be valuable. value. So you do get some men who are just working men and that's their story. But you tend to have, find that those are outnumbered by people who started off, or men who started off as a working man and have now moved into, um, well, the big things that people move into are business, uh, the arts of some description, politics, some of the scriptures and the church is another very big um, area that um, people move into and it's because they've done those things so their story has kind of two functions it's to tell their early life but it's also to tell the story of how they left behind their humble origins so that's definitely um, a, a significant motivation for many people writing. Very really important. It's so worth remembering as well. Although they may have become a preacher, for example, they may still, in actual terms be poor and that doesn't mean that doesn't carry huge wealth with it um but it certainly is a very different kind of life to that of their father for example who just worked as a laborer and whose life was devoted to earning a living um, they're still earning a living they're often not very well off they're often doing some manual labor as well as they're preaching um but it's certainly a different kind of life to that of their, their father and their grandfather
1: well, it seems to me that you've got quite a cast of interesting characters in this collection of autobiographies. Do do any specific anecdotes or stories stand out from your research?
0: Oh yes, uh, uh, many many anecdotes um, stand out, and um, you. Well, I ended up. I mean, some of the autobiographies are, are absolutely full of interesting stories and. Um, there's just so much of interest and they make such interesting observations about either their family or about the world around them and some of them are on the other hand I mean some of them are just pompous they're just um, an account of all the marvelous things they've done um, and what I think was very striking working with these sources is you feel like you get to know your writers um, and you befriend you put some of them particularly you befriend and you'll pick the um, autobiography off the shelf, and you'll go, Oh, here it is, Ada Chu. Oh, yes, and you feel like you know her, um, uh, and uh, you you get to know their kind of personality, their quirks, um, and you do build up almost a personal relationship with some of them. Um, yeah, they're just so full of stories of various kinds, uh, some of which are very striking. Um, some just take you back i mean some of them will just mention things like um yeah i mean one of the lovely stories that i I, I come back to quite often is one of the autobiographies she's a her father's a school teacher her mother runs a little shop so in terms of working-class families this is absolute respectability they're also a really small family for a long time it's only her then there's a younger brother but it's a very small family Uh, they're better off than most of the neighbors Um, but she writes really interestingly about how her father um, is given an egg every day and her mother will crack the egg and whisk it up in a mug with some milk and her father will drink it and and there's this kind of piece of performance this almost piece of theater that they perform in front of her every day Um, and he's the only person she says in the house who gets to eat an egg, she never gets an egg. Um, and I think that's very striking that even in the very best-off working-class families, an egg is something that's precious and unobtainable. Um, but also the the dynamics of the, the mother preparing the food, the father eating it in front of everybody. There's a, there's a lot of storytelling around meal times. who gets the food, who gets the good food, um, uh, behaviour at the table. There's, there's just so much rich material and it just sticks with you and stays with you, um, you know, in the long term. The other thing that comes out, a lot are stories of um, abuse really um, inside families and they, some of those are very, um, they stick with you, they, they stay with you a long time. Some of the things that are described there are almost quite harrowing.
1: Well, the anecdote of the egg that you told us about earlier does bring us to the main theme of the book because your book is titled Breadwinner in a reference to the archetypal sole breadwinner model of the family economy that was supposedly prevalent in the Victorian era. Um, could you briefly describe this model of family life for us?
0: Yeah, so absolutely, and that, that is um, in some, well, I mean, I, I suppose her family isn't entirely conforming to the breadwinner model because the mother ends up running a shop, but um, at its kind of purest, the breadwinner model is the father going out to work and him earning a wage that's sufficiently good that nobody else in the family or the mother in the family in particular doesn't need to work. So he goes out, he provides all the material needs for the family. He literally works all week up until a Saturday at lunchtime or Saturday evening. He comes home with a purse full of money. Um, and then the model is that he gives that money to his wife. He literally physically hands it over to the wife. Very often the wife will then give back Um a very small sum for pocket money, for spending money, or maybe the the, the husband sometimes reserves a bit of the money himself. There are stories of father handing over everything and then a token being given back, um, or there are stories of father keeping some back and then handing over the rest of the wage. The wage goes to the mother. Now, all of the food needs to be um, purchased, needs to be purchased on a a daily basis. There's no refrigeration in this period. So all of that work of spending the, the husband's wage in order to buy ingredients so that meals can be cooked, paying the rent and making sure that everybody's clothed, that the children have got shoes to wear, paying pennies for children to attend school. All of that spending of the money is the wife's responsibility. So she does all the domestic work inside the house. And it is very, um, very, very labor intensive in this period, pre-refrigeration, pre-electricity fires, the water's being fetched in many households Firewood is being chopped and every hot meal depends on fetching water, fetching firewood, chopping it and making a fire. It's very, very labour intensive. So that's the women's work and the husband, the father goes out and earns the wages to keep the household afloat. So it's a family model that's very divided with separate roles of men and the women. It's only ever an ideal, it goes without saying. There were always um, households that didn't have a breadwinner. uh, death, desertion, um, ill health, all sorts of problems um, could arise. Um, and it was also very common in rural areas for some for, for mothers to do some work at harvest, for example. So it was quite common in many communities for some women to do some work, not all the time, but bits of work over the year. And that, in essence, is what the breadwinner model is. And it becomes, I mean, it had been around, this, this divided family model had been around long before the Victorian period, but it becomes um, valorized and idealized, particularly in the 19th century.
1: And you mentioned earlier the difficulties of domestic labor. Uh, and very often, our modern conceptions of housework don't quite match up with this Victorian idea of domestic labor. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about how difficult it was, really.
0: Yeah, I think that is really important. And again, I mean, it's something that comes out very much from the autobiographies. So, I, I mean, housework today is still necessary, and particularly if there are children, there is still a certain amount of work that households have to do to get children clean, fed, off to school, or minded if they're preschoolers. There's, there's still a lot of labour, particularly where the children are involved. But um, really the idea of housework has changed all beyond recognition through the 20th century, and it is now much more associated with beautifying, cleaning, improving, enhancing the domestic criteria. It was really in the um, Victorian period, housework is work in the house. It is the work of the house, really fundamental, necessary work, water, fire, food, the, the very basic minimum things that you need to do um, in order to put a hot meal on, on, on the table, put, to put food in people's tummies. I mean, it's part of our pattern of survival. Um, and it was still, it was just still very, I mean, it's a little bit, um, less labour incentive in some cities where it's possible to buy some pre-cooked food. Um, so things like cook shops are arising, of pie shops. So you can buy some pre-cooked food by the late 19th century. Um, you can pay other people to do your laundry. So, you know, you can contract bits of bits of the housework out. Um, houses are starting to have piped water. And a few are even starting to have things like gas boilers, um and ranges um, so that the, the the heat for cooking can be provided and supplied much more easily. So these things are starting to develop. But even with these develops, the development, there's still just a lot of labour um, and, and labour that just goes far, far beyond um, what we associate with housewife. Or, I mean, just take another example. You've got an infant and their baby wets its nappies. Um, you've got no, um, obviously you've got no disposable nappies, but you've also got no washing machine um, you've also got no plastic um, outer wear that you can put around a child's nappy and that all kind of comes in the 20th century. So when a cloth nappy gets wet in the 19th century, so does absolutely everything else, the bedding, the clothes, everything is soaked and you haven't got a washing machine. So it can be difficult for us to really truly grasp the the amount of labour on really basic tasks in the 19th century.
1: And on the other hand, even though men probably let, learn- Better lives, I think you told us the egg anecdote. I imagine that the burden of this single earner system must still have been quite difficult to bear for many men. Could you tell us about the the working conditions and the challenges they face both in the workplace and the household?
0: Yeah, so I think absolutely, uh, you, you know, it, it's not easy um, to be the woman at home with responsibility for its labour, particularly if you've got a large family and you can't control your fertility and you've got seven children and you don't even really want didn't want more than two. You know, there's lots of challenges for women.
1: But I think there's also definitely
0: lots of challenges for men. Um, The work that men are doing, well, they work very long hours, first of all, much longer hours than we're used to. Um, There's no health and safety. Um, So work is often physically dangerous. Um, uh, There's certainly lots of evidence in autobiographies of men's bodies being uh, damaged and harmed by the work that they're doing, their lungs being damaged. you know, physical damage to the body's exhaustion, um, hard, hard physical work um, that's just exhausting and is often in quite a dangerous and difficult environment. What's also apparent is that men who are working in these heavy labour areas, heavy industry areas, so in things like mining and um, in a host of kind of dock work, for example, um, Work that's often very physically demanding, um, long hours, and and takes a lot of toll on the individual that's doing it. And you also have really high levels of drunkenness and drinking. Obviously, that's a huge problem in the domestic sphere because the alcohol costs money, and the more that's being spent on the alcohol, the less there is going back. that, That transaction between husband and wife, with the man handing over the wage packet. Well, that wage packet is going to be much smaller if he's spending a lot on drink. um, And that's going to have a lot of consequences for everybody inside the family, even leaving out the fact that he may also be abusive because of the drinking. But even leaving that outside is going to impoverish the family. And yet it's also clear that this heavy drinking is particularly problematic in some of the more onerous areas of work. Um, And I think that, you know, there's an element, we, we can certainly see an element in which men are under a lot of strain and for them drinking is a kind of release um, a kind of way of um, a letting go of some of the burdens um, I, I think this model is very difficult for men they work very hard outside the home and, and one of the other things that comes out from the is very often they don't feel they belong in the home very well because the demarcation is so strict because everything inside the house is done by mother, and the children identify so very, very strongly with the mother, and the father's just this um, slightly absent figure that they don't know very well and are slightly afraid of, the home is not always a very um, enjoyable environment for them to be. It also might just be very small, and it might be crowded with noisy children. Um, So for all sorts of reasons, they don't necessarily feel at home inside their family, and they're looking for this kind of human connection. We all need human connection they're finding human connection um in the pubs in the workplace with other men um and that's not always something that's to their um to, to actually that's to their benefit
1: we talk about men drinking their savings away and we, we also talked a bit about morbidity and mortality being sort of limiting factors in making this breadwinner model, model truly prevalent in victorian society um, what other reasons might there have been for for this model to break down?
0: Okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, there are really a host of ways um, in which the model breaks down. There is, um, I mean, clearly mortality is one of the big issues. There's just no father. Um, there's some problems with ill health and unemployment. They don't tend to be, um, they don't tend to be the more serious of the problems, even if men do have ill health. Um, it was very Serious ill health, they'll often die. Um, so then they kind of move over into the mortality statistics, or the ill health will get better and they'll go back to work. It doesn't tend, and there's no way of sustaining people, basically. There's no social service and so there's very little medical care. So there's no way of sustaining chronically ill people for decades and decades. They kind of tend to fit one way or the other. And unemployment, it tends to be short term. It is a boom economy during the 19th century. So there's not a massive problem with men unable to find work. I mean, there are examples of that as well, obviously. Much the bigger um, problem, so mortality is big, um, not so much problem with people um, unable to work or too ill to work. Um, And then really there's all these problems with men not sharing their wages. And that's a very big issue um, all through the 19th century um, of men not sharing their wages. And there can be like a variety of reasons for that. So um, the, the, the single most common reason is because they're actually drinking really heavily. Um, and very often, you know, they're, 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 they're addicted, basically. They've got an addiction problem. They, 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 can't, they cannot do otherwise. And some of them will meet, meet an early death through this as well. Um, but there, I mean, there's also, I mean, we just have this, the idea that the man will work this really exhausting labor for 70 hours a week, come home and then give all of that money to his wife, um, for the household and, and maybe get a, a little enough to buy a few beers back is slightly unrealistic. So even if men aren't alcoholics or they're not drinking all their wages long, sometimes they just don't want to give all their earnings to their wife. They, they don't want to do that. They want to go to the pub. They want to get involved in a political group um they want to give their money to the church they just don't want to spend their money on the things they want they like reading they want to go and buy some books They don't want it all to go on boots for the children and all the other boring little household expenses um so there's a lot of men just not sharing their wages sometimes through the drinks sometimes because they've got other things that they're doing um and i think one of the more serious problems with the breadwinner model is desertion it's more serious than um Death in many ways. So if a father dies, uh, the mother can and very often does remarry. Because you've got this family model where you really, you have to have the wife doing the domestic work. You have to have the male bringing in the wage. Um, so you find that both men and women, if they're bereaved, they off, uh, if they're widowed, um, they tend to remarry fairly quickly because they need to get that two-parent household. That's just how society works. There's no safety net. There's no social security. You've got to be the two prepare of you. If your husband deserts, you can't remarry. Um, so you're then just in a position of women will work at whatever they can do. But female wages are very much lower. Children will go out to work at a really young age. Maybe you'll get a little bit of charity. Um, mostly you'll just be really, really poor. And there's just no two ways about that. And you can't solve that problem through remarriage. Or You can't, but there's no divorce. Um, so there's no remarriage either. So that's another a kind of a fairly large um, area that's kind of m- breaking down the, 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 the two-parent breadwinner model.
1: Um, and you did talk about how when this breadwinner model sort of breaks down, one solution is remarriage and the other solution is the women and the children go out into the labour market and seek employment. What sort of jobs did women and children find in the Victorian economy?
0: Um, well, I mean, it's different for women and for children. So um, boys can start going out to work. I mean, by the end of the 19th century, they've got to remain in school until they're 11, rising to 12, rising to 13, eventually. Um, but boys can go out because they don't earn very much. But through most of the uh, 19th century, by the time a boy is about 15 or 16, he's getting quite close to an adult wage. Um, so the, definitely the best option is, and he can out-earn his mother. I mean, very he can start to out-earn his mother by his late teens. So um, your best option is to have some male sons who are able to go out to work. Obviously, it's not entirely durable because at some point that son is likely to want to go and marry and set up his own household. But that's um, certainly um, a solution. Failing that, not having sons of the right age or not having any sons at all, the mother has to go out to work. Um, And they do. Women certainly do go out to work, but women's wages are always very low. So um, a a, a woman is is lucky to be able to earn nine or 10 shillings a week, whereas an unskilled male labourer might be looking at 20 shillings a week. So it's double. I mean, women tend to be earning about half and there's no promotion prospects for them in those settings. Um, So they just have to work and have very low wages. And of course... If the mother's out to work, you've still got the problem of who's going to fetch the water, who's going to light the fires, who's going to bake the bread, who's going to buy all the food fresh from the market that day, and then somehow fashion it into a meal. That that hopefully, if the mother's at work, there might be an older teenage daughter who can take on some of that work. But that work is all quite um, involves quite a lot of skill. So you also find that when teenage girls are given the housekeeping household often goes to rack and ruin quite quickly because they're not actually capable of taking on quite that variety of skills. Um, So there's no really good solutions. And if I, you know, I don't mean to just be a big big downer on this. There are no good solutions. And you see a lot of distress, actually, in the families where you don't have a breadwinner. You have a lot of distress, a lot of fighting, a lot of conflict, often amongst family members um, and just really high levels of poverty. No very easy solutions at all.
1: Surely, that there weren't many easy solutions, but there were quite a few creative solutions because you note in your book several instances of women exuding a sort of entrepreneurial spirit and complementing domestic work with running home based businesses.
0: Yes, that's the alternative. Yes, of course, that's another thing that women can do if they're in that situation, particularly if they've got very small children, they're going to have no choice but to do some kind of home based business. So then you're looking at taking in the neighbors' washing. Um, taking in their laundry, maybe doing some needlework for them, assuming you've got the skills to do needlework. You may or you may not. Um, There are some very enterprising women in there, sometimes cooking meals for workmen, Um, lodging. Very often you'll subdivide your house um, and you'll overcrowd your house with men in the area and provide meals for them. So those are the kinds of solutions because women are so much poorer their ability to make any money is really reduced um, uh, you know they are inventive solutions but I wouldn't want to be too kind of romantic um, about um, these solutions they tend to you you tend to look you tend to find households that are under a lot of stress and under a lot of pressure where you've got you're know, you sub- subdividing your home for example letting lots of random people in and giving up your space for them and giving them your well, providing food, for, it, it just becomes very complicated. Those are the kind of solutions that are there. Um, where women have much better providers, if they've got a husband who's a good provider, those are the women that tend to be in a good place to set up a good business that might work for them quite well. Um, so we kind of come back to, as mentioned, in the school teacher and his wife runs a little shop. So that works quite nicely because it's a stable household that's got quite a lot of cash flowing through it anyway. Um but single mothers will really struggle to do something like set up a house, uh, set up a little shop inside the house, because they just won't have the resources to get it off the ground. Well,
1: let's talk a bit about food, because we've sort of touched on this idea quite a few times throughout this interview. Uh, and, it's, and it's very much related to this idea of wages and standards of living and domestic housework. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the kind of food that you would find in a Victorian era household?
0: Yes, um, yeah. The food is lovely. I love looking at the food. I think I'm very interested in food. Um, really, it varies a little bit across the country, um, and uh, it is very closely related to um, household income. So the higher the household income, the more varied the food will be. Um, and I think it's also clear that food tends to be. I mean, cities tend to be the more interesting place to live. Um, though families are much more fragile in cities so cities are also the places where you have the heavy drinking, the deserting fathers um, the fathers who aren't sharing their wages those are all much bigger problems inside the cities um, in the countryside wages tend to be low families tend to be much more stable diets tend to be much better and the reason the, me- the main reason for that is in the countryside um, a lot of people will have small gardens um and they will be doing a little bit of food production themselves um mothers might be making things like jam which will keep the family going all through the, the year um, they might have some chickens um, so again the children will be eating lots of eggs but probably a, a chance of having some egg uh, occasionally some eggs is like the diet um, vegetables according to the seasons maybe um, the family will keep a pig so that will certainly in uh, in on what's offered on the table um if we move over to the cities you don't tend to have that self-provisioning um and the things that you could only make your diet interesting if you like um it, it, if you're a better off family so all the, all the nice things that you're going to buy to eat you're going to have to have money for um so you see the kind of the two extremes you do see um families that can benefit from urban markets and oranges and interesting things like that, that they can go to the market and buy. Um, But you also have those families um, with very, very plain diets. What I think is interesting um, is you do have quite a lot of meat in the diets. Um, And meat has often been, I mean, globally, meat is a very good indicator of how wealthy societies are because in the really poorest of societies um, there's very little meat eating and particularly amongst children, very little children will not eat very much meat um, in in poor societies even today there'll be a a largely meat-free diet. Um, There's quite a lot of meat going in but there's also a lot of very cheap cuts of meat and that's described in quite some detail and very small quantities. There's a lot of stews that are being eaten with a little bit of offal from um the cow or from the pig or whatever and a little bit of meat in there that's been shared out um a, a lot of stodgy cooking so a lot of, kind of um puddings and suet um, and bread lots of bulking up on kind of the cheapest of cat, uh, calories as well so i mean it's difficult to generalize about diets they're very varied um there's a definite improvement over the 19th century in the, in the early 19th century. There just isn't, there's a lot of hunger. That's one of the other things I think really emerges very interestingly. There's a lot of hunger in the early 19th century. There just isn't enough food, even in the countryside. By 1900, there's still a bit of hunger, but you tend to find hunger only in very dysfunctional families, um, which are very poor, but also very dysfunctional. Um, whereas in the beginning of the 19th century, um You you don't have many dysfunctional families. They tend to just be poor. And that will be the explanation. There's just not enough money coming in to buy food, enough food for all of the children. Um, As I say, by the end of the period, it tends to be much more about problems in the behaviour, if you like, of the parents, much more of a kind of a social problem rather than a production problem. There's a real shift in the nature of the problem. It goes to being something to do with society's failure to share resources properly Um, whereas at the beginning of the period it's really about the economy failing to produce all of the resources that were required.
1: And surely for for children in particular uh, the problem must have been made worse sometimes by the fact that their father being the sole breadwinner was often given much more to eat because he required much more calories to carry out his job. I think you call it preferential feeding, do you?
0: Mm. Yes, absolutely. So even in a um, even in the you know, a a stable, functioning, relatively well-off family. I mean, it it is a really big shift. It's a huge shift. Everyone will sit down at the table um, and then all the nice best bits of the meat and of the dish are given to the father and the children. I mean, they'll often describe that when they had the stew, they had the dumplings and the gravy, but they didn't actually get many morsels of meat because the meat was preserved First and foremost, to the um, father, but also to the mother. Mother often has first dibs on the meat and the good things before the children. Um, So a lot of the children's meals are kind of meat-flavoured rather than actually containing a very large amount of meat. And there's a lot of bread and suet, um, bread bread and the cheapest form of fat that's available. That's a a staple of their diet, definitely.
1: Well, something that strikes me is that we spend quite a bit talking about the family and family structures, but we haven't gotten down to quite defining it properly. Uh, how large were these families or households generally? Were they multi-generational or neo-local? Yeah.
0: So they are um, traditionally nuclear families. So they, the model is very much um, young man and woman marry, they set up their own household, their children live with them, and then their children will leave, then set up their own household. Do have granny living in with the family sometimes, but not very often? And it's really quite rare for people to get married and to remain living with one or other of the parents. When that does happen, it tends to be because the wedding has been brought forward by a pregnancy and they're not yet in a position to buy the house. But the minute they are uh, to set up their own house and the minute they're able to move out, they will do so. It's not a long term solution They tend to be looking at two parent families. And a very big variety of sizes. So definitely, you've got some small-sized families. Um, There is family limitation being practiced, certainly, during the 19th century. Um, Some families are definitely trying to keep their, and some of them even have some insight into uh, their parents' ability, you know, their attempt to try and keep their family size small, using traditional methods, obviously. so you have a huge range. You have several families that have got one or two members. You've got uh, one or two children, more with three or four children. You've got a, a kind of the, the five, six, seven, um, which is not unusual, but is not typical either. And then you also have kind of going on, you have the very large families of eight, nine, 10, 14. Um, you know, you have these huge families as well, but they're very atypical. Um, so you really have the classic normal distribution. It's a much... More spread out distribution to the one of modern Britain today. It's more weighted towards the larger family. So uh, four children, I think, is the uh, is the um, median. Is the, is the most common family size is four children. Um, but you have you know a, a lot of fluctuation around that.
1: What happens then when family structures become a bit more complex, involving say illegitimate children or divorce and such?
0: Mm. Well, we don't have um, we. There's no divorcing um and very little example of people living outside marriage so you only live in a household if you're married if the couple are married um but you obviously do have blended families in the sense of um a widow and a widower come together and they both bring their own children and sometimes they'll go on and have more children as well so you definitely have um families of half siblings and of step siblings um they're not they're not hugely common they're not hugely exceptional either um and, and there's you know, there's not very much commentary on them it's a just a fact of life really that your mother may marry somebody who already has children very often sometimes these children will be much older anyway so you don't have very much to do with them um so you, you, you do get these um these blended families um that because children are leaving home at quite a young age um it depends a bit in factory districts everybody will stay at home but children leave home at a relatively young age so if you've got a large family by the age of 14 15 those older children will often be moving out of the household so you don't usually get very large numbers living under the roof all at the same time um in these large families the children will be expected to kind of leave the girls will be um, found a position in service they'll go and live there Um, work will be found for boys somehow and lodgings of some description will be made available for them or something like that.
1: Well, you've painted quite a a vivid picture of the Victorian economy for us and I I noticed at the beginning of your book you had a quote from Henry George that very often material progress does not merely fail to reduce poverty, it actually produces it. I wonder if having read all these autobiographies, do do you think that his quote is true?
0: Yeah, I think that is exactly... Um, What they found. Um, It's very clear that um, the Victorian economy is growing richer, basically. It would be daft for us to try and say um, the the economy is growing richer. And it's also clear that male wages are going up. Uh, It just seems undeniable from the evidence. There's a lot of debate over this with the Industrial Revolution. But at some point, we really have to accept that male wages are much better than they had been before the Industrial Revolution. And that kind of growth happens over the 19th century. So working class people by that measure are definitely getting richer. What I found and what I hadn't expected to find, and I think what really came out of the autobiographies is that although um, male wages are getting better, families are at the same time becoming more fragile and more unstable. Some families obviously remain stable, just as they ever had done. And if that's the case, then when the male wage goes up, the whole family benefits. So definitely whole working class families definitely benefit from the increase in wages. What also happens when the male wage goes up is that there's a kind of a breakdown in the equality between the husband and the wife. As long as a male wage was really meagre and really minimal, he had no choice in life but to give every single penny over to his wife who would then do things like provide the food and the lodging and the heat and all the other hot cup of tea that he might have wanted he he, he he could never afford to buy a cup of tea in a cook shop he could only get a cup of tea if he gave his money to his wife and that's how it works. so there's this kind of equality when people are very poor there's a kind of equality between the male and the female the, the husband and the wife and when the male wages go up that breaks down um, it doesn't matter in some families because some men see their future um, in the sharing of the wage and that, that for them is the progress, um, but not all men, obviously, definitely not all men. Um, and so you kind of get this kind of breakdown as well, this kind of inequality inside the family. And that's why you could have these things, these two things being true at the same time. You have the male wages going up. You have some working class families benefiting from that. But you also have this emergence of um, family breakdown, family instability, and of really um, desperate poverty. People who are just not sharing in this wage, these wage gains at all, because the children, the women don't have access to a reliable male breadwinner. So it's a kind of um, a growing of inequality as well amongst the working class people. You've definitely got the winners but you have this really big core. And when I um, put all of the autobiographies again, because I'm kind of keeping a track of them all in a spreadsheet and trying to work out what the proportions were, you've got a good 20% or so. It's not it's, its not trivial. You're not talking about 5%. A good 20% of the autobiographies are really describing being left behind and not sharing in the gains of economic growth because of family problems.
1: It, it, it's a paradox, really, that we see these rising wages and we describe this era as one of prosperity in the british economy but these the very wages that are increasing are the reason why we see so many breadwinners being less and less reliable
0: absolutely it's all it is connected exactly i think it is definitely the growth in the wages is also causing the growth of the unreliability and it's causing these people who are just cut out you know, a really substantial minority that are just kind of cut out of this growth. And it just goes back to the um, Henry George quote in that, you know, things getting richer, it doesn't seem to make all of us more prosperous. And it is this kind of problem that's built into the growth model. Um, and just, you know, the, the, the economy itself doesn't solve these problems. There are solutions to try and make sure people aren't left behind, but economic growth is not in itself a panacea for every single kind of um, social problem
1: And with that said what do you think is the single most important takeaway that readers should have from, from this book?
0: So I think what I am, uh, the single big takeaway, that's a good question I, for me I think it's about um, the relationship between the small the private, the intimate and the big themes in history, so I think if there's one thing I want us to do is it, to think differently in the future it's to um, get rid of this idea that the family in some way tells us something about the family. And that's really interesting if you're interested in the family, but it doesn't affect anybody else. And to suggest actually that the small, personal, intimate details may be significant to our understanding of the big themes in history as
1: well. Well, your book has highlighted some very important aspects of history that we should pay more attention to, not least the role of women in economic history. What other aspects of history do you think deserve more attention going forward among historians of your generation and the next?
0: Oh, gosh, that's quite um, a different one. I mean, to be honest, I'm at a, as you can imagine, when you get to the end of a project, you're a little bit like, um, and you don't really know where you're going to go next. I mean, I think the, for me, I don't think I would want to write a history in future that doesn't think a little bit more carefully about the experience of women. Um, It was quite easy for me originally when I was working on the Industrial Revolution to park that question because there weren't very many sources by the women. And actually, as soon as I had lots of sources by the women, everything started to look really different. So for me, I think I'd like to try and suggest that, you know, I mean, I think this is the idea of, the original idea of gender history would be all about looking at men and women together. Um, Though in reality, as historians we tend to be much more comfortable looking at either men or looking at either at women. So I think the idea of trying to bring the two together, even when there's a massive imbalance in the sources, um and the sources for one set are really rich, and the sources typically for the women are not really rich, that instead of just saying, Well, we'll live with that and we'll get on and see what we can do, we we actually try and um, address that in everything, you know, really factor that in. But as I say, that's an aspiration. Um, and at the moment, I'm just kind of picking myself off the ground of having done that project and trying to get started. You know, it feels overwhelming ever doing another book again, really.
1: Well, let's let's take a wine off your work for a moment um, because I'd like to wrap up my interviews with um, one question. If you could interview someone for their new book in history, who would that be?
0: Um, well, I'm going to cheat ever so slightly. I have recently um, interviewed and chatted with Emily Cocaine, Millie Cocaine, about rummage. That's a history of recycling. Um, and I really loved um, doing that. Um, the idea of recycling, again, is one of those things that we could think of as peripheral, but actually is really um, central. So the other one that's very close to my mind and which I haven't really discussed with the author in great detail would be Helen McCarthy's Double Lives, the history of working motherhood um which obviously as a 20th uh, uh, well i i, I envisaged her as a 20th century uh a 20th century historian and that so kind of moves me into another area but that is something i'd definitely be interested in and um, learning more about and chatting to Helen about
1: well thank you so much Emma. i've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today as i'm sure our listeners have you've been a very gracious guest and i'm uh, quite frankly you should I have had you on sooner <laughs> um we definitely love to have you on the program again
0: Lovely. Thank you so much. It's been well, a pleasure. It's been all mine.
1: On that note, thanks for your time, and thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in History.